It's good to see you all here today. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I only have one week left before I go on a four-month sabbatical. Were you aware of that? Yeah. You were aware of that? Dana! Dana was aware of that. Kind of like the sound of a freight train coming. I hope not. But I, I've been thinking so much about how next week's my last Sunday, but I thought you all should know this is, my, this is also my last week sort of around. And so then for four months I'll be on sabbatical, which I'm really looking forward to. And uh, I'm just thankful for all of you being willing to let me do that. Of course, some of you are thinking, I didn't know that. I didn't allow that at all. But it's, it's been in the works for a while. So um, I'm going to be on a four-month sabbatical and just renewal. And uh, some of you have asked me, does that mean you're like going to quit or something when you come back? No. I'm doing it so I don't have to quit. Think of it that way. So I'm really excited about that sabbatical coming up. And, and uh, anyway... Leave it there. So we're going through this series on Joseph. Joseph, this uh, young Hebrew boy, sold into slavery by his brothers. Yeehaw, family conflict. And now, just as a bit of a recap, after 22 years in Egypt, uh, he met his brothers again. Joseph met his brothers again, but they didn't recognize him. And I think it was because the the haircut and the eye makeup. <laughs> a little hard to see him on there, but... Maybe it'd be hard to recognize, but maybe after 22 years, there really had been a lot of change. Because of a widespread famine that was going on, people are coming in from all over the surrounding regions to buy grain from Egypt. And it turns out to buy grain from Joseph himself. God had warned the king of Egypt through a series of dreams that a great famine was coming. And Joseph was the only one who was able to interpret those dreams so that they could then prepare for what was coming. And the result was, Joseph was raised to this incredibly powerful position, second in command over all of Egypt and in charge of all the grain. Collecting it and then, once the famine hit, giving it out. Well, we saw last week how Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt to buy grain, and Joseph kind of plays with them a little bit. Then locks one of the brothers up, in prison, and sends the rest home, commanding them to return with their youngest brother, Benjamin, in tow, or not return at all. Benjamin, as the story goes, and you may know this already, this may be new information, he's the only full brother of Joseph. The others are, you know, brothers from different mothers, you know, literally. And so they all shared him dad, but uh, it was polygamous family, these, these uh, Old Testament stories, and, and a lot of them. And so they were half-brothers. But Benjamin, he's the uh, only other full brother of Joseph, and he's another uh, favored son of, of Jacob, their mutual father. But when Jacob hears about it, his name's also Israel, he, they go back and forth on this. And when, when he hears about it, he's like, nuh-uh. Benjamin's not going down to Egypt. I'm not letting him go. I'm not going to risk losing another son. So selfishly and protectively, he'd rather let Simeon rot in jail because he's not going to let Benjamin go. That is until the rest of the family starts to get hungry again. Because inevitably it happens. There's nothing coming up from their crops. They can't buy it anywhere else. And so they're hungry And that's where we pick up in Genesis 43. Now, today, we're going to go through three full chapters of the story. It's all one story. So, settle in. Hope you had breakfast. (laughs) I'm going to read parts of it and summarize other parts of it. Here, we'll dive right in. Now, the famine was severe in the land. So, when they had eaten all the grain they had bought from Egypt, the last time they were there, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah, one of his sons, said to him, 
The man warned us, Solomon. Who's the man? Joseph, yeah. The man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again until your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again until your brother is with you. They got the message. Israel, that's Jacob, their dad, said, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to him, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey and some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts. Oh, won my heart right there. Uh, Some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Remember that part? They came home with the grain and realized all their money had been refunded to them at the top of their sacks. They didn't like that. They were very scared about that. But so Jacob says, you know, take back double the silver to pay for what you're going to buy, but also for what you had refunded. Perhaps it was a mistake, he said. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother, didn't even get a name, other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. And so they go back with Benjamin and immediately upon their return, they're whisked away to Joseph's house and they are freaked out. They do not know what's going on. They, 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 they immediately assume it's payback because of the silver that they got back. That somehow that has been, you know, they've been like wanted posters posted around Egypt. Have you seen these ten brothers? Nine brothers. Well, how many of our brothers there are? Have you seen these guys? And so they assume it's all about that. And so they immediately go over to the steward uh, of, of J- Joseph's house and they say, you know, hands, silver in their, in, in their hands. Um, this, 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 this is yours. It was returned to us and, and we want to give it back because they're scared that that's what's going on. They're going to be, you know, punched for this. And with, I think, a twinkle in his eye, the steward of Joseph's house says, Oh, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Which, of course, is a flat-out lie, but that's the fun of this story. Okay, so Simeon's let out of jail. They're confused even more. I wonder how long he's been there because it says they could have gone to Egypt and back a couple of times. So he's been rotting for a while. I think had got to the point where he thought, His brothers really had abandoned him, which is, you know, a legitimate thought for him to consider. But no, he's released, and before anything else can be done, Joseph comes in, and the biggest shock of all, he then wines and dines them, as though he's this host of good friends. Just imagine how disorienting this must have been for these brothers. Think about it. They've been accused of being spies multiple times. Then a brother is put in jail. Then they're sent away with warnings. Then they got their money back. It's something as weird has been happening all the way along. And now this. And just when they thought things could not possibly get stranger, they did. Because when they go to sit down, they're arranged according to birth order. 
Do you know how troubling that would be? All 12 of you have sat down and all of a sudden you start, I wonder who put it together, you know? The guy in the middle, he looked down, oldest, youngest, next oldest, oh my goodness. How did they know? How did they figure that out? Remember, nobody's speaking their language, it's all through an interpreter. And then what's more, the youngest brother, Benjamin, gets served five times the pork. I don't know how he ate it. Maybe he was, well, anyway. Five times the amount of the other brothers he was served. I'm not sure how they got through this meal. Would you have been choking in the food? Sniffing the drink? You know, wondering when the hammer is going to fall? But then they make it through. The meal's over. They're alive. They're well. They're not poisoned. They're more confused than ever. And Joseph lets them go. They load up with grain. They're sent on their way with Simeon and Benjamin. And you got to know they were so happy to see Egypt in the rearview mirror. You know, I think about 10 minutes into their thing, they're going, oh my goodness, what just happened? Is there anywhere else we can go next time? We need to buy grain. Can we skip this place? Maybe up the coast, maybe to the east. If we have to travel further, let's do it. Because let's never, never get caught by that guy again. Can you imagine it? <clears throat> well, that's when Joseph springs his final trap for them. He's pushed them. He's pressured them. He's confused them. Then he's loved on them and shocked them. And now he's going to yank back really hard. Because unbeknownst to them, Joseph, while their grain is being loaded, he has his, the silver that they paid re, re, you know, returned once again to their sacks. That's freaky enough. But then, in the sneakiest all moves, the kind of move that only a little brother could pull, he takes his own special mug, cup, silver cup, and has it placed in Benjamin's grain sack. Lovely. Joseph lets them get about 30 minutes out of town. And then he says to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. I'll keep reading from Genesis 44. When the steward had caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks the first time. Why would we steal silver or gold from a master? Good question. Like, how dumb could you possibly be, right? Why would we steal? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, I love this, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found, of course, in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. They all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when when Judah and his brothers came in. And they threw themselves on the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, 
Far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon my servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you were equal to Pharaoh himself. My, my lord asked his servants, Do you have a father and a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father and a young, the young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he's the only one of my mother's, his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Again, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our younger brother is with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, this is Judah speaking now to, to Joseph, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to my father, to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And at this, Joseph breaks. He can't hold the ruse any longer. This is the sign he's been looking for. This is the moment he's been waiting to see. All this elaborate trap, all this back and forth and trickery and deceit and love and all the story that's unfolded so far. This is what he's been looking. And the very fact that it's the brother who suggested, if you look back in the story, it's the brother who suggested, let's sell Joseph into slavery. That's the same brother who now is offering to take the place in slavery of his younger brother, Benjamin. That's the heart change that Joseph's been looking for all along. It's this act of courageous sacrifice that puts the character change of his brothers now beyond question. And commanding all of his attendants to leave, Joseph says, he cries out, I am Joseph! In their language now, for the first time. I am Joseph! Is my father still Living. Well, his brothers, I read on, were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Now, why would they be terrified? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And they're thinking, no kidding. We know that. That's the problem here. But then he says this very quickly. And now, do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because 
It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You will live in the land of Goshen and be near me, you, your children, grandchildren, your flocks, herds, and all you have. I will provide for you here because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, this is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father all about the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around Benjamin and wept. Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his his brothers talked with him. Well, Pharaoh gets wind of this, this big reunion that's happening. And he immediately says, send the moving vans. We're going to move them all in. And that's exactly what happens. They move the family of of, of Jacob, and there ends up being 70 in total, the story tells us, including Joseph and his family, into Egypt where there's plenty of food. Can you imagine how this news must have hit old Jake when he got the news back home? Just imagine that. I'll finish the story by reading it. So the brothers went up from Egypt, came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, I mean, that's shocking information enough. He is the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, Jacob, said, I am convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What an amazing story of a family reunion, hey? Every time I read that story, I feel the choke of emotion. All those years, all that betrayal, all the hurt. What, must have, what it must have been like for Joseph to be reunited with his brothers, to see their sorrow and hear of their guilt and see their fear, as well as witnessing their heart change and the care that they demonstrate for their father and even their youngest brother. It's so real. Such a great story. But really, one of the most amazing reveals in the whole story isn't Joseph's revelation to his brothers. It's actually Joseph's revelation about his God. Joseph unbelievably sets the long years of difficulty, all the betrayal, the loneliness, the heartache, all the times when he was at the very bottom All the years he struggled as well as served, he set them all within the context of God's overarching promise. And it's quite a moment in the story. We we, we actually move over it really quickly. But when Joseph makes his reveal, he moves so quick to reassure reassure his fearful brothers. Um, You know, for him to so immediately forgive them and even invite them to forget. You know, forget what you did to me. For him to point out that 
even though they clearly had intended him harm, that God had somehow worked it all out for good. That it was God who had in fact sent him ahead of them into Egypt. That's the big reveal here. That's, I think, the greatest moment of shock in this story. God would do that? God would orchestrate that? God would see that far into the future and actually work things out that way? What kind of God is that? A God who is always working for our good. Paul expressed this fantastic promise in Romans 8.28, a promise that kind of honestly can sit like a New Testament headline over top of this Old Covenant story. Paul said, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this is just true. That's what God does. It's amazing. We don't always see how. And when we're in the middle of things, sometimes it's tough to believe. But in all things, God is actually working for our good. But how did Joseph know that? How did he get that insight? How did he become convinced that all these things that had happened to him, all the heartache and all the fear and exploitation and betrayal, all the years he had served in obscurity, as well as in, in leadership, but estranged from his family, all the years he'd been forgotten in jail, all the years where he'd wondered where his family was and if his father was still well and how his youngest brother and if his big brothers were still jerks, all those years. How did he come to this understanding? Somewhere along the way, Maybe it was as his brothers were heading back the first time. Simeon's down in jail. Maybe maybe it was then that Joseph began to pull the threads together of his life. Was it in the middle of the night as he woke wondering if his brothers would even come back? When he thought about how old they looked. When he wondered about their guilt that had so quickly surfaced. What did that mean for them? And he wondered how the rest of the family was maybe, maybe he woke with a start when it struck him that the only reason his brothers had even arrived in Egypt in the first place was because Egypt had food. The only reason Egypt had food was because God had given him the ability to interpret Pharaoh's two dreams where God had warned Pharaoh but didn't give them the meaning of it, that there would be a famine coming. And, and so as a result, they could prepare for it. But the only reason he was able to interpret Pharaoh's two dreams was because he'd been able to interpret the, the, the two dreams from the cupbearer and the chief baker. Remember that story? But the only reason he'd been able to interpret their dreams is because he was in jail in the first place, right where they were. You see where I'm going with this? Remind you of a book, kid's book? Like if you give a muscle cookie, that one? One thing leads to another. Except in this way, he's looking backwards and seeing how these events are layered upon each other. And perhaps there was a cold chill that settled on Joseph when he began to pluck his way through these different events and to see how each one depended, almost impossibly, on the random, malicious, even ridiculous events that occurred just before it. And maybe that is when, as he was considering those things, it was kind of like, schnick, everything fell into place. And he realized, wait wait a minute, God's hand was in this the whole time. 
God was there working these things out for good, for his good, for the good of his family, even for the good of the nation of Egypt. Joseph somehow, in the midst of this time, was able to discern God's hand, the pattern of his hand, the the protection that God had given him through the years, the the promise that God had given his great-granddad, and how that was all being now worked out, which resulted in him, a foreign slave, rising to incredible power. And all of that, Joseph could see, pointed to a surprising revelation. The way he put it is, God sent me ahead of you. Which is quite a way to interpret, I was sold into slavery by jealous brothers. God sent me ahead ahead of you. That God somehow was in this from the start and that all the sin and all the evil and all the hard and ugly stuff that God had been right there. He'd been deflecting some of it, using other stuff, turning it to advantage in order to guide Joseph along the way and work out salvation for his whole family. That's an amazing God. And now Joseph sits perfectly positioned as God's hand of salvation for his family perfectly positioned to fulfill yet another step in this promise of blessing that God had given to Abraham's family, a promise that he is now going to fulfill yet again through his family, blessing the world and pointing again toward Jesus. This seems like wonderful stuff, but it kind of raises troubling questions a little bit, I think. Troubling questions, but also, I think, comforting questions somehow. You see, God didn't make these brothers commit the evil that they committed. They did that because their dad was an adult and they were jealous. And they suffered for years with the guilt at what they had done to their brother, wishing they could take it back. God didn't make Potiphar's wife prey upon her husband's handsome manager. And she had her own issues. But somehow God used that too, even though it resulted in Joseph in jail. God didn't create the favoritism of Jacob or the arrogance of young Joseph or the forgetfulness of the cupbearer. But he did use it. All of it. God is amazingly resourceful and he's always effective at working out his promises. And that's what it means that God is able to use anything to make good things happen. It's not that God calls evil things good. I think we need to be really clear on that. It's that God's goodness is greater than evil. So that God is able even to use evil things for good. And within that, we see a really big difference. Instead of a, a weak God who is powerless to change anything and is always wringing his hands over in the corner because he can't do anything, or a malicious God who's like blessing evil things and somehow we're supposed to think that they're good, which is nonsense. No, instead we have a holy, loving God who gets right into the muck of human frailty and human sin and then works from within that mess to actually save us from our mess. That's the God we serve. That's the God that Joseph had come to know on his journey from the pit to the palace. It's the God that we see ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we can do what Joseph did. Knowing that God is good, convinced that God is resourceful, confident that God is always at work for our good, we can look back at our lives with fresh eyes. We can look back at difficult, hard experiences, things we've done, things others have done to us. We can also look back at good experiences in our lives and we can discern the hand of God in it all. We can look back and discern the hand of God in the loss of a parent 
as hard as that is. We can look back and look at even the death of a spouse and see how God was able to turn this for his benefit and others' good. We're able, unbelievably sometimes, to look at the tragedy of divorce and see how God was able to use it to bring new life. And even as devastating and as awful as it is, how God was able to use even tragic things like sexual abuse. How God is able to use the difficulty of a job loss or the sickness of a child. But God is able to use evil for good. He's able to work out his purposes for us through these hard experiences in our life. Knowing that doesn't mean that what happened to us was good. I've heard, you've heard me say that before. I think that's critical. Or that we whitewash sexual abuse or, or the tragedy of great loss. No, we call it for what it is. It's evil. But then we affirm something that is so powerful. That is evil. But God is greater than evil. He's greater than sin. Both our sin and the sin of others to us. He's greater than death itself. That God is so good and so loving and so wise and so resourceful that even the most difficult experiences in life can result in God's glory and others' good. Those of you who have survived and are now flourishing, having experienced sexual abuse in your life, you know, I've talked to many of you, you know how as tragic and awful as that is. How the Lord has been able to use you to love on broken people who wouldn't have heard of the grace and healing and forgiveness that is available in Jesus because you have a story to tell and are able to love them in a profound way. You, I know that some of you have experienced the death of a spouse and have seen through the death of that spouse salvation come to many who've discovered life and freedom and got it and even have seen then the beauty of new relationships that have formed after that. Others have experienced, I know, job losses, which at the time you think, how in the world can God use this? And yet, and yet it has resulted in, in, in new experiences, new growth in your life, new ministry opportunities, and even changed lives. Whatever it may be, we can actually increase our confidence in God's never forgetting love as we see him working out our mess for our good. And even when that's difficult to see in our own lives, which it often is, especially when we're still in the mud. Sometimes it takes some distance where we can look back to really see this clearly. But even when it's difficult to see in our lives, we can, we can look back even further to the most defining central person and event in history. Because, you know, that's exactly what God was doing in Christ. He was working out good from evil. Evil men, jealous priests, corrupt politicians put the innocent, loving, healing master Jesus to death on a cross. The Holy Son of God died at the hands of wicked men. And God, unbelievably, this is the most stunning thing in all of history, God used their evil to affect our salvation. God used the greatest evil to accomplish the greatest good. On the night Jesus was betrayed, on the very night that Jesus was betrayed by evil men and tried by jealous priests, on that very night, Jesus took what we will take here, bread, and he made a new covenant with us. And the point, it was here that God would make his ultimate reveal to us. 
It was here at this meal that we come back to again and again, being reminded of this central fact that God never forgets his promise. He never forgot it through the long years that Joseph was struggling and far away. He he never forgot it through the whole story of his ancient people as it unfolded. And he was aiming every relentless, never erring step along the way toward the evening, the night, the day when Jesus himself would accomplish the greatest good at a moment of darkest evil. That our good God took humanity's greatest evil to accomplish our complete salvation is an incredible truth that we hang on to. And it's exactly what we celebrate at communion. I'm going to invite uh, Dana to come and join me. And we're going to lead you through a communion liturgy, one of the liturgies we've been offering as we come to the communion table. And then at the end of our uh, taking communion, I'll come up and just wrap up uh, the rest and the final part of this message. Today, receive this call to communion in the words of Jesus, who said, Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. At the invitation of Jesus, we come confessing our sin together. Would you stand with us as we say this confession? Forgive us, most gracious God, for what we have done to bring pain to your beautiful world. Our hard and unkind words, our careless and thoughtless deeds, our lack of compassion and reluctance to render aid when it was in our power to help. Amen. And now upon your confession, receive these words of assurance. Through the cross of Christ, God has had mercy on you, pardons you, and sets you free. Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. God, strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in eternal life. Amen. In the early centuries of the church, faithful Christians bore witness to the truth of God's revelation in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And they did so often in opposition to those false and harmful ideas about Jesus. From those years, we received the gift of various creeds, expressing the heart of the Christian faith and confessed down through the ages by the communion of saints. Now let us join our voices with these faithful witnesses and confess our faith in the words of one of these gifts, the Nicene Creed, on the screen. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. 
On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. We believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your work from the beginning of time through to the end of time, the way that you have always been one who is greater than evil, who takes things that we don't understand that we don't like, that we don't agree with, takes, takes things that are evil and turns them to good. Even this thing, we thank you that through your wisdom, your foresight, your goodness, the death of your son brought about our salvation. Amen. I'm so grateful that God is as resourceful as he is. And you should be too. The fact that God is able to take our sin and our difficulty, even the sin of others that has been done to us, and somehow work it out for our good, that is a good God. Capital G. Two capital Gs, in fact. Without him, where would we be? I shudder to think of it. But you know, God isn't able... only to use our sin and difficulty, is he? It struck me this week as I was working on this message that he's able to use our good too. In fact, if God can use our sin and the evil around us to work out his good purposes, just imagine for a moment what he can do with our loving obedience. Imagine if God can turn malicious jealousy and arrogant pride to our advantage. Just imagine what he can do with gentleness, with kindness, and with grace. If God can use our hard-heartedness, what can he do with our soft and open hearts? Because that's something what the Holy Spirit came into our lives to do, to to work in us, uh, uh, to create in us something new, to work in us the will and the heart of God, to fulfill in us this new covenant that Jesus established here at the table and is renewed as we come. So that we grow ever more responsive to God, ever more loving toward others, 
so that we, as the Apostle Paul writes, though we who have been created in Christ Jesus, we would do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that, friends, I just think there's no telling what God can do with that. With people who are responsive to Him. With people who are yielded to Him. Actually, there is something. We can tell. He'll change the world. He'll change our families. He'll change our relationships. He'll actually alter the trajectory of not only our lives, but the lives of many around us at what's what God loves to do. So, we can leave here today comforted because God is able to use sin and evil for our good. But we can also leave here today inspired because God can amplify even more the good and the grace and the love that the Holy Spirit has poured into our lives to share with others. Let me pray for us as we finish today. Lord Jesus, you are so good, so amazing, so resourceful. The fact that you could turn the evil against you for our good, the fact that you can look at our lives and transform them, it's amazing. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would send us today comforted in your resourcefulness, but also inspired by the fact that, Jesus, you want to use us, our yielded, open hearts. You want to use us to bring others healing and others grace and others forgiveness. And so would you send us today out into our families, out into our workplaces and our schools and our streets and our farms. Would you send us from this place, Lord, as people yielded to you and ready to see all that you want to do through us and for others. Send us now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your grace and power, in your name we pray. Amen.